Amen. Hello, everybody. You guys out there? Hello? Good to see you. Michiel, thanks for coming and leading for us this morning. I've known Michiel for 12 years, which is a long time now, eh? And um, from a little whippersnapper, I think I was a little whippersnapper, and he was even a little whippersnapper. We used to play in band together, and he was like the rocking bass player, you know, on the bass. And um, just watching the growth in your life has been inspiring. He's now a father of three, uh, married to beautiful Monique. He's not here this morning, um, working a stunning job, and just wonderful watching God's grace on lives and journeying with people and watching them go through the different seasons of life and like having kids and all the different things that go on. So it's, thanks for coming. We appreciate you. So last week we were uh, delving into Philippians chapter 3, the end of it, so verse 17 to 21, and the title of what I was speaking around was Living Examples. Now I don't want to rehash it, but I just want to give you a little a little um, window into it if you missed it so you didn't know what was going on. Bates, two weekends or three weekends before that, had spoken about fix your eyes on the prize. That's the earlier section in Philippians. And then Paul then exhorts us, don't just fix your eyes on eternity. Don't just fix your eyes on on this eternal perspective. But I also want you to fix your eyes, and he says this odd thing, on me. And on those who are modeling life for you like me. He says, brothers, I want you to be imitators of me and imitators of those who are also imitating Christ, basically, is the sentiment that he's bringing forward. And so we were looking last week at these living examples and the fact that there's these two kind of races going on. There's this one race, which is the race of religion, and you've got to keep on trying to achieve your salvation, So you run and you run, and the reason for your running, if I could say this as a definition of religion, your reason for your running is that you're trying to achieve your salvation. It doesn't mean you're insincere. It doesn't mean you don't sacrifice much. It doesn't mean you don't pay a high price. But Paul ends off by saying the end of that race is that your end is your destruction. So the end is incredibly different. And then Paul's saying, these Judaizers are trying to set that example for you. They're trying to say Jesus plus something. That's what religion is. Jesus plus something. But then there's another race which is being run. And Paul says, this is the race I want you to follow. Even in our midst this morning, there's examples of men and women that we can follow on this race of faith. And this is the race of the assured. They're not striving to achieve salvation. They're assured they already have salvation. And their race is a race, and they're also running, but they're running out of deep gratitude. They're running out of a a heartfelt place of, man, God has forgiven me so much. I'm going to do good works. And these good works have nothing to do with earning. As Michelle so beautifully brought that word this morning. They don't have nothing to do with earning a medal around our neck. Our father earned the medal and placed it over us and said, son, daughter. But we can't escape the fact that there are very real works which we are meant to run in. And the end destination, which I would have loved to have spent more time on last week. If you go and read chapter 3, verse 20 and 21, it's the most stunning description of what's coming. So where it says that the people who follow the Judaizers, they're going to have an end which is destruction. It says of those who are going to follow Paul who follow Christ is the idea. It says they're going to be called citizens of the kingdom of heaven. They're going to, God's going to take their lowly bodies and transform them into glorious bodies. Isn't that good news? Aren't you sick of your sin? 
Aren't you sick of returning like a dog to its vomit to your sin? Month after month, we go back to the same sin and the same stuff in our lives. There's times where I just get so sick of myself. I'm like, God, will I ever be free from this besetting sin? It's like where Paul says, who will, who will deliver me from this body of death? Or maybe we look at the, at the illnesses which go on in our congregation and in our friends. And death which comes to all of us. And we look at these things and we say, God, when are you going to transform our lowly bodies? These bodies which are prone to death from the moment we're born, we're heading that way. When are you going to transform these lonely bodies? And then it concludes with this phrase that he's going to subject all things to himself. How many of you look at the issues of justice that we're facing? With confusion, with I don't know what to think about Kayamandi sometimes, or what to think about Yonkers Hook, or what to think about the many other injustices going on around the world. And he says there's coming a time, church, there's coming a time when all things will be subjected to him. We're not there yet. We're never going to achieve utopia. We're going to to see something of the kingdom of heaven coming like Jesus commanded us to pray. Your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. So we're praying, God, let some of your kingdom come. Let us be some of that salt. Let us be some of that light. But at the same time, holding it in tension, knowing that it's only going to come to fruition right at the end. When Christ comes and does what we've been unable to achieve. And so this is where we continue today. It's not Paul hasn't left us in some nebulous headspace when he talks about following examples. He says, I'm going to give you some very practical examples. And in chapter 4, so turn there with me, Philippians chapter 4, he begins to look at examples of things that the Philippians are facing, real things, difficult things that the Philippians are facing. And I think we face them too. And he begins to apply Godly wisdom to how they are supposed to be examples while they go through this stuff. All right, are you with me? Let's turn to chapter 4. Verse 1. Therefore, my brothers, and the word is not exclusively male, it's brothers and sisters. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, whom I love and long for, my joy And crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat, or I beg, or I urge, is that word. I entreat Udiah, and I entreat Syntica to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, to help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. This is a phrase we've come across a number of times already in Philippians. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything. But in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Let's let's pray together as we've read that word. Father, I want to ask you this morning that as we approach your word, that you would help us, Lord, to be doers 
not just hearers of your word, not just those who like our ears to be tickled with the latest ideas or philosophy or good ideas of what the world could look like. Lord, we want to actually be living examples. We actually want to change. And I ask you that by your Holy Spirit this morning, you'd come through the power of your word and speak into our lives. Come and change us, Lord. Come and change the way that we look at unity and offense. Come and change that in our marriages. Come and change it in our friendships. Come and change it in our boss and employee relationships, Lord. This is the practical areas of our lives that we bring, our lives that we bring before you and say, God, we want you to touch these areas of our lives too. Nothing is off limits for you, Father. So I feel like this morning my, my job is, have any of you watched, those of you as little kids, any of you watched um, Over the Hedge? Have you watched that movie? It's quite funny. There's a, there's a squirrel, I think it's a squirrel, there's some kind of creature in there. And when he gets hold of any kind of energy drink, he drinks like a slug of coke or something with lots of sugar in it. And then everything goes ridiculously slowly around him. So people are like, Ooh, and he just like runs around and he can do all this weird stuff. So you can like slap someone across the face like 10 times. And then when it comes back into real life, you watch this whole thing happening and the guy gets like smacked like 10 times across the face. And sometimes we come to scripture and it's like we just read it and we just read it and it's like we're rushing and we're rushing. And I feel like my job this morning is to come and, and be like that squirrel and just slow it down. Just say, let's go slowly. Let's reason together. Let's, let's look together. And I want to come and try and do that through God's word this morning. So I had prepared to go through that whole section up to verse 7. And I just felt in my prayer this morning that I'm going to just cut it in half. And we're just going to look at two big things this morning. And we're going to take a little bit more time around that. So the first kind of introductory statement that I want to make is that Paul starts this text off with this word, therefore. And we know what to do when we see the word therefore. It means he's talking about what's gone before. It's another way of saying, so then. So I've been saying something, and because of what I've been saying, so then I want you to act in an appropriate way or to respond in a certain way. So then we need to remind ourselves, well, what has Paul been saying? Well, a whole bunch of stuff, hasn't he? He's been saying so much through the book of Philippians. And if you read it slowly, you'll see these very clear themes beginning to emerge. One of the very strong themes in the book of Philippians is this theme of examples, of being an example. So right in the beginning in chapter 1, Paul starts off. And what does he say? He starts through his own life to begin to recount experiences that he's having where we look and we're like, I don't know if I could do that. So as an example, he says there's these people who are preaching Christ, but they're not preaching him from good motives. They're preaching him from rivalry. They're preaching him in order to get at Paul. And Paul says, what do I do? I rejoice in all things that Christ has proclaimed. And he begins to set this example. Then he shows us the example of the Philippian church who facing opposition on all fronts. Not like opposition, like, you know, like a mild little non-PC word that someone happened to say to you and offend your fragile sensibilities. No, like they're facing genuine opposition, persecution, imprisonment, getting, getting clapped. Physically, this is what these guys are facing. And Paul says, I want you to come together. I want you to love. I want you to stand in unity. I want you to stand firm. 
And then in chapter 2, we see Paul speaking so beautifully about the example of Jesus Christ, who though he was in the very nature of God, did not consider that something that he would take to his advantage, but instead lowered himself. And there's a beautiful picture of the gospel in those four verses. And then he speaks about Timothy later in chapter 2. And he speaks about Epaphroditus. These are two men who he says, follow their example. This is what they did. This one almost gave his life. You know there's no one like Timothy. And then in chapter 3, he gets very personal. And he, he pulls back the curtain in his own life. And he says, listen, I've tried religion. I did a whole sermon on this, the advantages that Paul had. He says, if, if you think You have any advantage to commend you to God. I have more. And then he has this profound concluding statement where he says, but I consider it all rubbish for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. And then now in chapter 4, it's a continuation of this thought. He's now beginning to... In this congregation in Philippians, it's quite shocking when you read it. You're going to see just now, when I read it the first time, I just read very quickly, and then I started slowing down and looking at it. It's quite, there's quite serious implications in the way that Paul gives these implications, gives these examples. But he's now going into the Philippian church and saying, I want you to be examples. And this theme which has come through the whole book, is coming through in chapter 4. He does the same thing, and I won't go and labor it through the whole book again, but he does the same thing with unity. He's, he's compelled again and again to speak about unity, about unity between those who are opposing them, between these preachers who are preaching against him, unity of the brothers and sisters. In chapter 4, that comes through so clearly again. And another one is standing firm. You can go and look in that and, and read in Philippians. So, that's why the therefore, that's what the therefore is there for. It's this continuing thought. But I want to, I don't want to spend much time on it, but I want to pause and look at the unusually, um, loving is maybe a good word, or the unusually devoted language that Paul uses. If someone wrote to you, Gordon, and said, Gordon, my brother whom I love and long for, my joy, my crown, my beloved, it's not normal, right? Helena <laughs> might be getting a little bit edgy if it was a woman saying that to Gordon. It's, it's this unusual fatherly affirmation language, and it's actually one of the trademarks of Paul's writing. That when he writes to these churches, he uses this incredibly loving language over his sons and his daughters. He, he loves them. He carries them deeply in his hearts. But I, I thought, just as a little sidebar as we start that I want to give a shout out to our encouragers this morning. Some of you are incredibly encouraging people. I don't see Luke Ritchie here. He's normally here uh, religiously. The one day I want to call him out, he's not here. But Luke Ritchie, if any of you know him, that guy is an incredible encourager. I hardly get a message from him that doesn't have something positive, something encouraging. And you, you might be going through a tough day and you get that message and you're like, oh, I'll read this one. This is the message I'm going to read, the one that came from Luke. Charmaine is another great example. There she is at Rocking the Daisies. It's not just our students who've gone there. Charmaine's there. The heart for young people. Her kids are, Dev, how old are you? 24, 25. Dev should be at Rocking the Daisies. (laughs) His mom's there. It's It's wonderful. But Charmaine is a beautiful encourager. And then I think it also echoes a challenge 
to those of us who weigh every affirming word, the, the word misers, the tight-fisted, who only affirm in the, in the rarest of occasions and maybe just with a, that was all right. This is a challenge to us, looking at how Paul so freely, so graciously pours out these words of affirmation over these people whom he loves. I remember a moment in high school where my best friend came to me and said he had read something or he had been philosophizing about something. He was quite a deep guy. And he said to me that he's now decided that he's going to limit his words of affirmation so that when they come, they're really meaningful. So he's only going to use them like on the odd occasion. And he meant like once or twice a year. So that when they came, you knew that that was like real praise. And I remember thinking, but I like affirmation. Like, why do you want to limit this this affirmation over my life. I've heard parents say things like this. If we, if we speak so much, so if, we, if we kind of affirm our kids too much, we're going to spoil them. Let me tell you, parents, the world is going to knock the stuffing out of your kids. Day after day, a relentless knocking the stuffing out of your children. That's what the world is going to do. You can pour as much praise and love. I'm not talking about flattery. I'm talking about affirmation. My girl, you are so good at that. My girl, you are beautiful. Do you know how much body image stuff is going on? Do you know that in the last 15 years with social media, that suicide rates and mental disorder diagnoses have gone up 80% in parts of America? Our children need to hear words of love and affirmation from moms and dads. Every worldly wind is drying our children out. We need to pour water on these little plants. And I'm not just talking about kids. I'm talking about students. I'm talking about those of you who are 60 and 70. We never outgrow our need for affirmation. We never outgrow it. And I just love that Paul so beautifully speaks to it. All right, so there's... There's two things we're going to look at this morning, but I want to tell you what I'm going to do next time as well. So the first, the first question is what happens when unity is broken between two people? What happens when you get offended? It's very practical. What do you do when this guy and this guy start to have a fight and they hate each other after a while? What do you do? So what is broken unity and how does Paul look at it in this passage? The second thing I want to ask is, is there a difference between happiness and joy? We so often just kind of use that word interchangeably, happiness and joy. Is there a difference? I think there is. The third thing, which I'm only going to get to next time, is reasonableness. See that little phrase there, be reasonable. And I want to look at what does he mean? What does it mean to be reasonable and why is it important enough to make this list? And then the last one I think is something that's so pertinent to our generation is moving from anxiety to long-lasting peace. Man, I see anxious people all around, people struggling with anxiety. So let's dive in, and we're going to look at number one, broken unity. Let's read verse two again. I entreat Eodia, I'm not quite sure how to say her name. Good name if you want to confuse teachers for your kids. I entreat Eodia or Eodia, and I entreat Syntica to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, this is where it gets shocking, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in 
the book of life. So on one surface level, it's really obvious, right? There's two women having a fight. And it's not, the point here is not anything to do with women having a fight. It just happens to be the example that Paul has in Philippians. That was supposed to be humorous. <laughs> Bad audience, wrong crowd. So that's really easy to understand on a, on a surface level. But I want you for a moment to slow it down and to think about where this letter is being written. Okay, so let's insert your names. You having a fight in your church with two people. So there's two people in your church having a fight. So I don't know who I could pick on. Let's see, I won't, I won't use any names. So there's two of you and you're having this huge fight. Then this apostle Paul writes the letter. Let me ask you this. Who's the letter to? Everyone. He starts off by saying in Philippians chapter 1, to all the saints in Philippi. To all the elders, to all the deacons, the chances are that this letter was not just being read in one church. But even if it was in one church, it's bad enough. It's also being written in a, it's also being read in a whole bunch of other churches. This is how the letters of the time would work. Now imagine how you would feel if someone had written about a fight that you were having, publicly naming you in a letter. Oi! It's like, have you ever been CC'd in on that really awkward email when people are having a fight and they think, I know what's going to sort this fight out. I'm going to escalate this by CCing in my 120 friends. And you get this email you know nothing about and it's like, oh. Now here these two women are being outed by Paul. And I want to just, there's a couple of things I want to take home from this. I want to ask you this, how highly must Paul have valued the unity of the community? How highly must he have valued the unity in order to take a risk to this measure, to publicly rebuke and ask for restoration between these two women? I think that we in our generations, all of us in the room this morning, I think we've been taught to privatize religion. I think that what we want to happen in our religious lives is that, you know, just leave me in my, the way I do my devotions, the way I do my stuff. It's me and Jesus. And I think we do exactly the same thing when it comes to our offense. When it comes to being offended or someone else offending us or us offending somebody else, it's very difficult to go and say, hey, Ollie, can I, can I tell you that that thing that you did when you spoke to your wife like that, that was wrong. That's not something that our, our group of people generally, our generation are generally going to be very accepting of. We want to privatize our offense like a dog in the kennel. We want to go and lick our wounds like where no one can see us. Just leave me with my offense and we'll sit there and stew like that for years. But Paul doesn't look with our modern eyes. Our modern eyes have shifted everything to the individual. So talking with a friend of mine who's going through a divorce and saying, well, well, well how's, this, how's this affecting stuff? No, it's good for me. Okay, but you've got children. Let's talk about the family. No, I, I get that. But at the end of the day, Paul, I've got to make a decision for me. This is not a believing friend. And that's hectic because we've shifted from having a community focus from even our own family to a place where we're just incredibly individualistic around our religion, around our offense, around our thoughts, around a whole bunch of different stuff. And Paul here kind of cuts 
right through it and he says these words, help these women. I want you, and he starts referencing different people in the community, my true companion, Clement. He starts speaking about different people. He says, I want you guys to help them because they're fighting and they can't figure it out. And he's doing it publicly. He deeply values community. I listened to a podcast yesterday from the Gospel Coalition. It's called, um, you can go and find it, it's called The Coddling of the American Mind. The Coddling of the American Mind. And it's these guys, these two guys, they're social psychologists, and they're writing about, um, how, did he, how did he sum it up? The, he's, they're writing about how fragile a generation has become, that you can't stand up anymore and say, I disagree with you and have a robust conversation about why you disagree because they just throw bombs like hate speech. Or they throw a bomb like, you standing on my rights. And it just blows the conversation out of the water. He used a brilliant metaphor. He says, it's like we're playing tennis. And I hit the ball across the net to you. So we're in, let's say we're in a lecture hall, right? What's the purpose of a lecture hall? We want to learn truth. We want to learn. We want to learn something. So that's the, that's the game that you're playing. You want to learn. So I hit the ball across the net playing tennis. But this guy runs across and tackles the other guy. What's the problem with that? He's not playing the same sport. And so in our lecture halls, where we're throwing, we're trying to robustly discuss truth, someone comes who's playing a different game. They're playing a political game. Or they're playing an anger game. Or they're playing a race game. And so they come and they tackle you because they're not playing tennis. And they shut down the conversation. Anyway, that got me very excited. But go and listen to that podcast. It's very powerful. The coddling of the American mind. But Paul's not doing it. Another take home from this section is that a person is not a heathen because they disagree with us. How many Christians are getting shot by other Christians simply because they have a different opinion to us? Because they see something as different to us. Notice in the, look at the verse. Help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel. What does labored side by side mean? It means they've expended energy. It's been hard work. They're not just pew warmers. They've worked for the gospel alongside Paul. These women love Jesus. He says, their names are in the book of life. He calls them fellow workers. And I see us so quickly forgetting to, to have grace for one another. Forgetting to get perspective on our disagreements, on our, our offenses. You know this rugby phrase, play the ball, not the person? It's a good phrase. Play the ball. We need to learn to, what is the offense? Let's deal with that. Let's deal with it as mature adults. Let's discuss it. Let's figure it out. Not going after the person. You always, you're like, you know what I mean? But in this text, we see that the relationship is broken down. I want to point you to another part of Paul's life, which is really fascinating. Do you guys remember the story in Acts where Paul and Barnabas have a huge fight? Paul the Apostle. Do you remember this in the book of Acts? You can go and read all about it. 
There's a guy called John Mark. Sometimes he's called Mark. Sometimes he's called John Mark. And it looks like, we don't have all the details, but it looks like Paul and Barnabas and John Mark went on an expedition together. And somewhere along the way, it got so hard that John Mark, who was a young, immature man, bailed on the mission. Right? And now Paul and Barnabas are seriously good friends. If you remember when Barnabas is in Corinth and he sees what's going on, he says, we need someone. We need Paul. And he doesn't send an email because there's no such thing or an SMS. He goes and for a few months, he goes searching around Asia Minor looking for Paul and he finds him and he brings him back. And then for a few years together, they are preaching the word of God. These guys have gone to battle together, but they have a huge fight because Barnabas, his cousin, they think is this John Mark guy. So he's got some family link. He wants to give him another chance. Paul says, over my dead body. He abandoned us once. He's not going with us again. And they have such a huge fight that it says they split ways. Paul took Timothy and Titus and went off. And Barnabas took John Mark and he went off on his own mission. Now, why am I telling you all of this? Because I'm showing you that even with the great apostle Paul, there's a fence. There's broken relationship. But then we see something so beautiful and I I can't wait to get to heaven and God's going to paint all the lines that we can't see, all the in-between stuff. But we see it's estimated about 25 years later that Paul writes the book of Timothy. So 25 years on from that moment with John Mark. And do you know who he asks for in 2 Timothy chapter 4? He asks for John Mark. And he says this phrase, he said, because he's been of great service to me, in my ministry. Isn't that beautiful? Seeing Paul humble enough to not just write a man off once and leave him, but 25 years later calling for that same John Mark to come and be part of his ministry in his final days, become like a son to him. So let's ask a couple of application questions for ourselves. What about unity among churches? Guys, you know this is one of my favorite things. I love going after this because I see it rampant in Stellenbosch. We've got such big mouths about other churches. Such big mouths about other believers. Do you think there's a different body? Do you think we're being baptized into a shofar body and an every nation body and a new gen and a Josh gen? They stole our name, Josh gen. Get offended about that. I mean, do you think there's a different body? Is Is there a different Holy Spirit that they have? When Paul calls them fellow workers, do you think that these guys are not fellow workers with us? Of course they have some differing opinions. Of course there's things which we disagree with them and we're going to hold fast to some stuff. That's okay. But can we still say like Paul that we've labored side by side for the gospel in Stellenbosch? I read a brilliant quote about a month or so ago and I always remember what they say but I can't remember where I read these things. I've got to find some system. But it says this, you don't truly want revival until you're happy for it to start down in the church down the road. You don't truly want revival unless you're happy for it to start in the church down the road. That's how we should be approaching Stellenbosch. Saying, Father, bring your kingdom. Bring it upon Christchurch. Bring it upon Gemeente. Bring it upon, Gemeente, uh, upon the Engeer. Had a brilliant meeting with Daniel from the, the Land Rover in here, the most stunning guy. These guys are laboring side by side for the gospel with us. Let's stop shooting holes in our own boat, Christians. So what does Paul t- speak about risking offending people? I think, I think 
there's times where we need to, because of love, we need to call stuff out that we're terrified to call out because we're going to offend someone. No, I'm not talking about just you know me. I'm not talking about just going and shooting your mouth off and offending people randomly and for your own pleasure. But I'm talking about having the courage. Ask this question when you're faced with a situation. What is the love response? And take your western glasses off. Not like love is always soft. Love is always gentle. Love is, no, it's not. Ask any married person. They'll very quickly help you understand that love is not always just being gentle and nice and sweet. We need to have hard, robust conversations. We need to risk offending one another. I want to ask you, are we, are we ever doing that? Are we ever accessing the courage in the Holy Spirit to have the conversation and to say to someone, hey, that thing that you're doing is going to be detrimental to your maturing in Christ. The last take home I want to take from this is maybe there's some of us this morning like Paul and Barnabas who've had a fallout with someone maybe even someone else sitting here and one of you sitting on that end over there and one of you sitting on this end over here and the other one so across they went to the mom's room and maybe we need to access some humility so this is what Paul is doing in this little piece he's effectively saying set an example in the way that you deal with disagreements and offense we're talking about setting examples. The second and last thing I'm going to deal with quickly is happiness versus joy. Is there a difference between happiness and joy? Paul says this phrase over and over. We've looked at it in many sermons through this series. In the Lord. In this particular verse, in verse 4, chapter 4, verse 4, he says, Rejoice in the Lord, and I will say it again, rejoice. Now let me ask you what circumstances these guys are facing. We've spoken about this at length. They're not simple situations. They're not simple circumstances that the Philippians are facing. Happiness, this is important, happiness is hinged on what happens to you. Happiness is hinged on what happens to you, the surrounding circumstances, right? In other words, if something that you want to happen happens, you're happy. If you get the present you hoped you would get, you're happy. If you get the diagnosis when you go to the doctor that you hoped you would get, you're happy. If you don't, you're sad. And that's okay. Those are fine, but joy... But joy is something way, way deeper than that. Because happiness hinges on your circumstance. Joy, it takes the in the Lord part. So we don't just hook onto circumstances. We don't just hook onto a diagnosis or a present or a current circumstance, which we all know is like shifting sand in our lives. But instead, we hook on in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. That's joy. Circumstance, happiness. In the Lord, joy. So we hook onto something way, way bigger, which enables us to look beyond our immediate circumstance. What are you facing today? Does it make you happy? Does it make you sad? Are you joyful? It's a different question. Now, guys, you know I'm not calling for some fake joy. 
I'm not calling for some fatalistic optimism which just kind of skips through the daisies no matter what's going on in our lives. I'm not calling for that in any way, shape, or or form. But what I'm calling for is what Galatians 5 speaks about when it says that the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, self-control. This is what we, this is what we're calling for when Paul says rejoice. And again, I want to say it to you. Rejoice. It's that we're learning to live an increased measure of the fruit of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And then let's finish off with this. I want to ask you how. It's a good question. You should ask a preacher that. How? How do we do that? Okay. I want to, I want to paint a quick roadmap for us. I think these are some of the main ways that we access joy rather than just happiness. Number one, and it's extremely obvious, it's not really number one, it's just a point. We live in healthy relationship with Jesus Christ. I cannot say this more sincerely or more seriously. You will not experience long-lasting joy in your life apart from Christ. You can't. You'll have happiness, and maybe it'll be an extended two or three years of happiness. But there's going to come trials. and every single, The Bible tells us that. Every single one of our lives. And so without a healthy relationship, why is it so important? Because without it, you can't build trust. How do you trust a God that you don't spend time with? How do you trust a Jesus that you don't know? That you don't have a relationship with? And if you can't trust Him, then tell me how you're going to have joy when you're facing circumstances which produce everything but joy. So that's where the roadmap starts. It's relationship with Jesus. And that relationship enables us to develop a response in our hearts that he is king over every circumstance. And I think that the distance between a circumstance hitting us and when we realize that God is in control is one of the indicators of maturity. I think that the longer we've walked with Christ and the more mature we become with Christ, the quicker the responses from the moment that someone picks up the phone and hears a devastating something in their lives, some circumstance that everything falls down, and that that moment happens and it's real. And the distance from that moment to the moment where they say, but God, I trust you, is a sign of our maturity. It's a sign of that relationship being healthy with God. Another one of these little signs on a roadmap is stop trying to work up your feelings. Some of us, we feel like we have to be happy. I'm not calling for fake happiness. I'm not calling for false coming in. How are you, brother? Oh, I'm blessed. Thank you so much. Had a wonderful week. And his wife was like, which week was that? I'm not calling for that. I'm calling for joy. I'm calling for tears where we can cry and and be real and face incredible stuff going on in our lives. Terrible stuff because we know the kind of world we live in and yet still say, I will cling to the one my heart loves and we trust. It's that beautiful Spurgeon quote, when we can't trace, when we can't trace his hand, we can still trust his heart. I butcher it, but it's something like that. When we can't trace his hand, we can still trust his heart. I think we need to spend much time 
asking ourselves, what does it mean that I am in the Lord? This is what Ollie and Michelle picked up in the, in, the, in the worship this morning, is this issue of identity. What does it change because you are in the Lord? J.B. was sharing this with me in, our, in one of our groups the other day, and it so profoundly hit me. I, th- I think if I get him right, he's not here, otherwise I'd ask him to quote check me. But I think that scripture, so let me put it this way. I grew up where all the emphasis was placed on Christ coming into my heart. Christ coming into my heart. And he was saying to me that there's only one verse that actually speaks about Christ coming into our heart and about 70 verses of us being hidden in Christ, of us, us being in the Lord. And that's why when God looks at us, he sees righteous. Not because, Drew, you're righteous. I know you're not. I've played golf with you before. <laughs> I know you're not. You know I'm not. But God can look at me and say, Paul, Drew, righteous because I'm hidden in Christ. I'm in him. And I think we need to spend some time thinking through our identity in Christ. What does that mean about our body? What does that mean about our proneness to sinfulness? What does that mean about the current weaknesses we're facing? What does that mean when the gap between I get the news and I trust in God is huge? That happens in our lives. And we get angry in the middle. God, how did you let this happen? Before we get to the other side, we're like, God, okay, I trust you again. That's reality, right? I think this identity thing is huge. I want to use an old, well-worn phrase. Count your blessings. Name them one by one. Then you will remember what the Lord has done. Any of you remember that old song? Count your blessings, name them. Come on, one by one. There we go. But you know, this is actually a practice thing. This is actually a skill. You don't just one day wake up and, and you've learned how to count your blessings. This is something that we daily begin to look for joy in the midst of darkness. We begin to look for blessings when it looks like everything's falling apart. We say, God, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to look for the things which you have given me which are good about this husband, about this wife, about this child, about this job. Gets into the nitty gritty fibers of our soul. One more, one or two more. I think that we have to learn how to insist on rejoicing. Do you guys remember last year I showed you a a clip of Estelle, a friend of mine who was dying of cancer, and just before she died, she two weeks before she died, she put a a video together where she wanted to encourage the body around how to die well, how to face it without fear, and how to face it with joy. And I remember a conversation with her before she even had the cancer diagnosis. One day, she came out after church in Somerset West, and she's, I'd been leading worship, I think. And she said, you seem really down today. And I said, oh, you know I am. I really am. And she said, I want to encourage you to get in your car and sing some songs of praise. And I thought, oh, you old woman. What do you know? What do you know? Sing songs of praise. I don't feel like it. That would be inauthentic. That's what I thought. That would be inauthentic. I want to be an authentic person. Reflect my feelings on my sleeve. You know, I got in my car and for some reason I thought, you know what, I'm actually going to take Estelle up because she's a godly woman and I know she's walked a long road. And I just started begrudgingly (laughs) to sing under my breath. 
<laughs> driving my car. It taught me such a good lesson because within five minutes I was singing at the top of my lungs, singing praise, God, you're good. God, you're amazing. And I felt, I felt completely different. I felt freedom. It's something we, we have to learn how to insist upon. We've got to insist upon it. I love how David says it in Psalm 103. He's he's speaking to his soul. He says, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. He's commanding, another version says, he commands his soul. These are things we need to learn. The last one is this. I think we've got to learn how to, if we're going to live in true joy, as opposed to just pseudo-happiness, we've got to learn how to forgive everyone, everywhere. One of my favorite quotes, unforgiveness is like drinking poison, hoping the other guy's going to die. That's what happens. You hope that that guy that's offended you, he's going to die, but you drink the poison and you end up dying. So let me ask us, are we going to seek happiness? If we're trying to seek happiness, we're going to try to manage our circumstances. Week after week, paycheck to paycheck, budget to budget, job to job, we're going to try and manage our circumstances. If we're going after happiness, man, it's an up and down yo-yo. And you better get super skilled at learning how to manage circumstances and cushioning yourself and your family and your children from in cotton wool so that they're protected from the circumstances in the world, right? It's not sustainable. But joy, joy comes and it underpins happiness. And joy comes and it underpins the deepest sadness, the deepest sorrow that we can face. Joy comes and underpins it because joy is not based on circumstances. It's based on a king in whom we trust that sees a bigger picture than we can see right now. We're going to take communion with this scripture. Hebrews chapter 12. If ever you need to see joy... As opposed to happiness, read this little verse. I'm going to read it in context now. But Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. A very unhappy moment. A deeply troubling moment. You can go and read Jesus' encounter in the book of Matthew or, or the Gospels. You can go and read how crazy a moment this was for our Jesus. And yet within that, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. Let's read the whole text together. Chapter 12, verse 1 to 4. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Here's the example. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of God. Consider him, Jesus, who endured from sinners such hostility against himself 
so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. What an encouragement Jesus gives us. What an encouragement. You can pray for us and we take communion together. Father, I really feel, Lord, like I've bumbled my way through that sermon, God, but I want to thank you that you are so in control of your word and you so want us to hear you. That you use any platform, any moment, God. Even I think of, of Paul where he speaks about these guys who are trying to share the gospel with wrong motives and they're trying to incite something against him. And even then, he still rejoices, God. And I want to thank you that your word goes out like a sword. And even if some have switched off and only heard five minutes this morning, Lord, would you come by your spirit and cut them to the heart. Again, I ask you, Lord, that we would be doers. We don't want to come and sit week after week, nod and smile and wave. Lord, we want you to change us. We want this gospel, this insidious, creeping, beautiful gospel to get into every nook and cranny of our lives. To permeate our hearts and to spring up in the hardest stone that your seed would be watered and would bloom. And would grow in our hearts, Lord. Father, we commit our circumstances to you. Lord, brothers and sisters here this morning, facing incredible things, difficult things, marriages, illness, so many things, God. You know them. Each and every one of them, God. And I ask you that in your grace this morning, you would come and encourage. You would come and lift up heads that are bowed. Lord, like C.S. Lewis says, we, we kids that are playing with mud pies, completely unaware of a holiday by the sea which we've been offered. Lord, were we doing that in our lives? Lord, would you come and challenge us? Were we looking down at the stuff going on? Come and Come and let us see, let us glimpse for a moment the perspective of eternity, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. In your wonderful name, amen.